Hi, I'm Galeed Kaunit. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. As our field increasingly needs us to be more creative, more innovative, and more effective, a career in music can be approached in a lot of different ways. In our bonus episode series, Mavericks, we bring you the voices of some of the Double Read community's biggest trailblazers, each forging their musical path in their own unique way. For this Mavericks episode, we welcome oboist Dan Schwartz, assistant professor of oboe at the University of Oklahoma. Dan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Can we start off by having you talk to us about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, So I am Dan Schwartz, like you said, the assistant uh, professor of oboe at the University of Oklahoma. I'm also the second oboe English horn player in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. Um, And I'm just kind of a lover of oboe and a lover of teaching and a lover of making music and um, I never thought I would end up here. I started college as a philosophy major. I was planning to be a lawyer um, and sort of fell in love with music along the way. And a little bit later in life, I always consider myself a very late bloomer um, with music. I started college on, a, you know, $1,800 plastic oboe, um, you know, so very late bloomer when people are coming in with, you know, $9,000 instruments. Um But, yeah, that's a little bit about kind of me and what I'm doing currently. Would you talk to us a little bit about your compositional journey? I mean, you are a college teacher in a traditional sense, but um, the reason we thought of you for Mavericks is because you are also a very successful composer, and I'd love to hear more about how you got into composing in the first place. Sure. Um, So I – in undergrad, I took – it was required of my major in, at, at Vanderbilt to do a, like, introduction to composing course. Um, so I had a semester of that, and I really liked it and um, kind of took it very seriously when I was in the class because I thought it was really, really neat. Um, and then I ended up taking just a year of private lessons um, my senior year of undergrad and kind of just – continued to do it slowly and slowly along the way. Um, you know, whenever I talk to other oboists or other musicians, regardless of their age or level, most people are kind of terrified of composing. And, you know, in some sense, we do it all the time. Um, and, you know, it's as simple as just kind of singing a song in your head um, that you're making up on the spot or whistling something or, you know, you're the, the mood strikes you and you're belting something out in the shower. But um, it's amazing that people are kind of terrified to put, like, pencil to paper. Um, and especially at a very advanced level of playing, you are 100% capable of writing really terrific music, starting with kind of solo unaccompanied repertoire for what you play. I only play oboe and English horn and, you know, the oboe family of stuff. I'm not a pianist. I'm a horrible pianist. Um, And, you know, I played saxophone in marching band and crash cymbals, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe, who knows? But, uh, you know, it's – I really started – well, I, I took a little bit of break, actually, when I um, finished college, and I didn't really come back to it um, really until I started working at, at OU. A, a little bit along the way, a little bit here and there, but, you know, a lot of us write our own cadenzas for things, so you do little composing along the way, right? You know, you've got a Mozart concerto, or you've got something that you want to put your own stamp on, Um so I started to, you know, I as I was starting to teach, really students of all sorts of levels, when I started here, I had doctoral student all the way down through entering freshmen, um, and 
I had private lesson students who were brand new beginning. And, you know, everyone kind of comes to music with different abilities and different kind of skills. And so I, I started kind of composing as a way to, like, write pieces of music for my students because I wanted to, you know, write a piece that would introduce them to either something rhythmically complex or even extended techniques. Um, and, you know, when you think of what's the first piece an oboist is going to learn with extended techniques, everyone says the Persichetti parable. Um, and it's a great piece, but there should be more than a single answer out there for, you know, a way to kind of introduce an oboist to harmonics and multiphonics. And, um, and the Persichetti doesn't have actually a ton. There's a few little things here and there. Um, but you're not going to have them, like, jump into some, you know, insane, like, Denisov solo oboe piece that has crazy, you know, 150 different multiphonic fingerings and all sorts of things, and it just would bog a student down who's learning it really for the first time. So I was kind of filling little gaps is kind of why I started composing. And it's not that those pieces don't exist. I, I just didn't know what's out there. Um, and, you know, you listen as much as you can listen, and you try to hunt down as pieces, as many pieces as you can. But, you know, you can only have someone play the second movement of the Cezanne Sonata so many times before you want something that's going to, like, introduce kind of free, flexible playing. I mean, there's other pieces, obviously. But um, it was – I primarily started really to kind of fill gaps and holes and things that I saw were kind of in the market. And – all of this is under the umbrella, I think, of it's an interesting thing when you're writing for your own instrument um, because you know it intimately. And most composers are not oboists. There are plenty of composers who are, um, but most are not. And it you know, doesn't disclude, if that's a word, I think that's a word, um, <laughs> composers from being wonderful writers for the oboe. Um, but I, I do find that I come across pieces um, where a composer has kind of, you know, like insert goofy extended technique here. You know, it's, it takes you out of the actual music of the piece because it's more about the trick than the music. Mm -hmm. And so I find that sometimes it can be a little forced, a little non-idiomatic where, you know, it's it's a challenge or sometimes it's you know, even too much of a challenge where it isn't always going to be that successful and, um, you know, for a, for most players kind of all the time. Um, but that's really kind of primarily where I started. And you know, I've, over the years of um, being at OU, this is going to be my seventh year coming up, um, I have very much gotten into making my – making is a – this may be a light term, <laughs> and requiring as part of their grade, um, <laughs> that they compose. And we do a, com we do a composition project every year. Um, but at, at OU, we have a sophomore barrier, which some many schools have, which is kind of your halfway through your undergrad, and it's a, a larger jury at the end of the year. It's a 20-minute performance. Um, and all of my students play an original component on that. And they'll play an original piece on their senior recital. Um, and I think that's really, it ends up being at when they start, it's very, you know, everyone's kind of terrified to write music for themselves, but really by the end, you know, when you're writing a piece for your senior recital, it always ends up being the most meaningful piece and performance because your family is there and your friends are all there kind of supporting you. And it's a good space to kind of really be ex to express yourself and, um, so, you know, we do a lot of composing, um, in the oboe studio at OU and last year we did a, I usually try to come up with unusual inspirations for my students. Am I talking like a lot? <laughs> <laughs> I am, right? <laughs> long answer. Is this too long? How long no. is this supposed to be? <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Okay, um, well, for sure, like, jump in if I'm, like, just spinning my wheels here. Because <laughs> okay. 
questions? I don't know. I feel like that's a really long answer. Well, um, I have a question, actually, about sure. incorporating it into your pedagogy, because um, I totally believe what you're saying about people being afraid to put um, pencil to paper and, and that type of thing. What type of benefits have you seen pedagogically in your students as in terms of bringing them outside of their comfort zone? And I wonder, does it help with things like uh, performance anxiety or that type of thing, having this kind of confidence by tapping into that other part of themselves? 100%. Um, and I think the, you know, composing works for every student at every level. Um, at the earliest stages, it's learning to figure out what rhythms you just played and what key am I in and what meter am I playing Um and so at the very beginning stages, I even have, you know, beginning oboe students where they only know a few notes. I'll have them kind of create little exercises where they play with just the rhythm of it. And it's like, take a B flat or A right in the middle of the staff, and how creative can you get with rhythm? Um, but what it ends up doing is it starts, you start to think about music I, I, in a totally different way. Um you're not reading symbols on a page and just kind of spitting them out. Um, it's the opposite, where you kind of have to explore first, find what you love, and then you can kind of commit to putting it on the page. It, I think it helps with really everything, and I think it makes you a very, very consummate musician and player. And um, it's, I think for very advanced people, it's learning to explore all the different things your instrument can do from, you know, blowing wind through the top of the horn without a read in, playing just the read, key clicks, um, multiphonics that kind of your oboe and your read setup let you do and which ones they won't let you do. Um, not every oboe plays the same multiphonics, um, and, you know, de definitely read styles affect the ease of certain extended techniques. Um, but beyond all that is I think it's, it's kind of flexing your inspiration muscle. It's taking, mm -hmm. you know, your artistry to the gym. Um, and you don't, so much of your, of your pedagogy as you're a student is just doing what the book is telling you to do and what your teacher is telling you to do. Um, so you have very little opportunity to you know, assert your own voice and point of view. And there's obviously shades of gray inside that where, you know, you add your own kind of interpretation and artistry to certain pieces. But in an age where we live in where every piece you can hear on Spotify or YouTube very quickly, um, you, you can kind of fall into a habit of just kind of going through the motions um, and like insert crescendo here and make sure this note tapers beautifully. And every piece has to have that amount of control. But I think by actually requiring yourself to be inspired and to find things that you like and, and musically, and that's like, oh, that was a really cool melody, or I really like this kind of rhythmic thing here, or, you know, you start to actually really like you know i've then it's what i say it's, it's flexing kind of your artistry muscle um and inspiration but it's a way to really find a, a circuitous way to love music and i think we get so um it, it can be very taxing and kind of browbeating to be a musician and to be in musical training so much of the response you get from your instrument and your own kind of critical ear is negative. It's, ugh, that, that, that note didn't speak easily, or I could have got louder here, or I played a wrong note, or that, that rhythm was wrong. So there's so much um, kind of negative feedback coming at you all the time. Um, and it's nice to be able to sit down and play anything, and nothing can be wrong, um, you might prefer something over something else, but there isn't, you can't make a wrong move, um, when you're improvising on your instruments or singing. Um, and I think there's something to be said for 
giving yourself some time every day to just be right, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's very, you know, oboe and double reeds are, you know, they're snarly and they'll bark back at you really quickly. Um, So it's, it's a way to just kind of get away from the music and the music stand and um, just kind of do your own thing where, you know, anything goes. So I think it's, a good way to kind of, you know, expand that way. How did you, um, how quickly was your progress from writing um, etudes and small pieces for your students to use pedagogically um, to writing works for oboe and electronics or oboe and piano that are much more sophisticated in advance, that are published, um, that are premiered at international conferences. How long did that take you, and what kind of work was like? What was that like? And I would like to ask, add on to that. Did you feel any nervousness when you made that transition? The you know it's interesting because when you live with a piece like from the inside out, there is an un. I'm a I'm a very nervous performer. I'm not a you know I am a shaker and a a quiverer and a... Oh, my God, same. You know, so it's... There's an immense amount of comfort and security blanket kind of wrapping in yourself in a piece that you've written because you you know it better than anybody's going to know it. Um, And it's, you know, there's a little bit of that safety where not everyone is bringing their own interpretation of the Mozart concerto to your performance, right, where everyone has played it their own way. Um, so it's, it's a way to, um, I find it very comforting. Some people might not be as, you know, at, at, at the start, you're kind of, you know, you want to make sure you're not apologizing, you know, and it's come up on your podcast before, um, but this whole imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Like, what am I doing? I'm playing a piece I wrote for flute, bass, and oboe and electronics. Um, you know, what am I, I'm you know, just some oboist from Chicago and, you know, why, why am I, um, why is my voice valid and that kind of thing. And, you know, there was a great article. I don't know who wrote it and I don't remember where it was, but it was kind of a, um, an article that took down the, the dangers of kind of the, you know, I don't know how political we want to kind of get in the podcast, but it was taking down the dangers of kind of ivory towering the the white male genius composer oh. um, and that it, it be, you know over historically that's what we've got right a lot of white male composers mm-hmm. um and it's this kind of genius idolization um and it can especially if you aren't a white male um it can kind of bleed over into facets of your playing where you might not feel worthy or valid. And that imposter syndrome is a really serious thing. Um, and, you know, for, it, it never really goes away. I think, you know, we all experience that imposter syndrome at, at all stages in our career. And everyone's career morphs a little bit. And, you you know, you start focusing on different things and you're you find yourself in different places and doing different things. And I think that's what's exciting about a career in music is you can really kind of carve it to your own um, lifestyle and, and what you like to do and love to do. And, um, but, you know, with the, um, with composing and presenting your own pieces and, and actually committing to writing music down, um, you, I find it, it gets a lot easier um, and I see it not only with myself, but with my students, and they start to feel a little less imposter when they're writing pieces for themselves um, as they kind of go through it. And so, you know, for a freshman coming in, they start their first in the spring of, of their first year, um, and then they'll do it again the next year, and then they'll do it again their junior year, and they'll do it again their senior year. Um, so really by the end, they've written, they've, they've written, they've written four serious <laughs> works. Um, and to kind of elaborate on the project that I asked my students to do, um, I, I, I give a talk kind of every year about um, that, you know, 
music doesn't exist in a vacuum and music doesn't exist inside a practice room. You know, everything you do and, and all the work you do is to bring everything to the human experience of music. Um, so, you know, it's to collaborate with other musicians. It's to play for people. Um, it's to play with people. It's to play, you know, it's to send pieces away to parts of the world and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So all the work you do is to be, at the end, a human being um, and connecting in very important, deep ways with other humans. Um, and it's, you need to, I, I call it your inspiration well, and so I think everybody has their kind of inspiration or artistry well, and, you know, slogging through your scales and playing through your rep and that kind of thing starts to kind of take buckets of water out of that well. And you've got to do something that puts water back in that well. Um, so for me, and I was kind of joking at the very beginning before we were even talking about, um, you know, got into any of the questions, but I love to garden. Um, I love to cook. I love watching documentaries. And, um, you know, I think you've got to find things that are outside of music that inspire you. Um, and, you never know where that's going to be, and, and different things will inspire you in different ways, but things that make you happy, and you can't be making reads all day. Um, you know, there are days you have to probably do it, <laughs> but, you know, you've got to get away from the read desk and, you know, getting your major scales and minor scales and things like that up to whatever tempo, you know, they're going to be there tomorrow, um, and, you know, you've got to be a human being first because, Really, and, and to be honest, with my own career, I find that there are so many amazing, wonderful talents out there that the, that the way in which you connect with other people is as important um, as kind of your ability. You've got mm -hmm. to have, meet the, the requirements and things, but I find that if you are someone people want to play with, if you're someone people want to work with, if you're someone people are, you know, okay saying, hey, let's go out for dinner after this concert, um, I think that's an incredibly important and often not discussed thing um, mm -hmm. in music. Um, this is all looping back to the project, and I'll get there for sure, but I, I think that you've got to be a person, and you've got to be a person that is, you know, you can't, you don't change your personality and things, but it's, it's something you've got to find a way to be happy inside music. Um, and it's very different for everybody. Not everyone finds the same joy. I actually love playing scales. Um, and for me, I find it to be like very kind of soothing and like putting on old slippers or, you know, I, I like to actually run through my scales and I do that regularly. And, um, I love that part of my practice routine, but um, not everyone loves that. So you've got to find a way to kind of find your happiness inside music. So that, all that being said, um, the project that I um, do with my students every year is I connect with a professor and a course that are outside of music. Um, so this past year, we did a kind of side-by-side -side collaboration with the astrophysics department, um, and a, a professor was wonderful enough to kind of give us um, come to studio class and give us kind of private lectures about theoretical sounds in the universe, right? So what what the sound of a neutron star dying might sound like um, and, you know, the effect on um, kind of time and space distortion and, and light and things like that. There's obviously no sound in space because it's a vacuum and there's, you know, you need air for things to vibrate and things like that. But, um, there are, um, there are actual like NASA recreations of what sounds and things might sound like. And, um, cause they've done things in labs. And so there was actually audio to listen to, but it was really incredibly broad at the end. Um, and I had students composing pieces about, I had a student who mapped out constellations on a staff and came up with melodies based on how constellations mapped out on a staff paper, which I thought was brilliant. That is so creative. Uh, so creative. And I never would have come up with that. Um, and I had uh, students do um, 
uh, kind of like Greek mythology is based on the stars and, and kind of doing programmatic settings of those stories. Um, I had a student do a piece about a black hole and the event horizon, which is the, the perimeter of a black hole, where on the outside of the perimeter you can still see things and, and you know, but the black hole is continuously like sucking things in. But once you're in the, no one knows what happens inside once you pass over the event horizon because everything ceases to be, um, you can't see in there. So things kind of theoretically vanish, although it takes, it's an infinity to vanish. It, it continues to vanish forever um, or until the black hole explodes or does whatever it's supposed to do. Um, the, so it was a, an amazing piece for oboe and bass ocarina, and that is not a typo. It, <laughs> it, it was something that she had, she had a beautiful glass bass ocarina from before and, and something she had loved and, um, it was kind of like she did a really wonderful thing where the ocarina was representing kind of the the mystery inside the black hole and the oboe was kind of representing the outside the event horizon and what's kind of and they converged and then they interacted and then the oboe kind of was sucked into the black hole and, and how it kind of interacted with the ocarina um, but that's it's I find it it's amazing to see students light up when someone brings in a bass ocarina and says, I want to write a piece for, for this. Okay, let's do it. Wait, what? Um, yeah, let's, let's do it. What do you have in mind? Um, so it's, if, if a students find their own kind of inspirations and when the topic, I happen to think this one was the most successful because it was a very, very kind of ripe topic there's so much to kind of draw from which was really really nice um and we were also incredibly fortunate enough shout out to jenny brandon um <laughs> we have jenny brandon who's a wonderful composer in california um mm -hmm. work with the students um and i thought it was would be nice for you know especially the folks who've done it with me for a bunch of years to get just a, a new voice and a new kind of person kind of helping them through the the, the foibles of composing and the process. And we, she talked to us about her own process of composing. Um, and, you know, everyone learns and does things differently. And, and it was very helpful for students who got a ton out of it. And um, the pieces were really great. Um, and Jenny Brandon was incredible and amazing for basically donating her time to us and um, kind of Skyping into studio class and working with students individually over the phone. And um, it was really an unbelievable um, opportunity for myself and the students and um, to just kind of get better as musicians and um, for someone who really does it as a living. Um, so this past year was astrophysics. The previous year was um, we teamed up with a graduate course in Spanish poetry um, so what we did was I had the students, the graduate students in the um, poetry class come to the School of Music and we went to the recording studio and I recorded them reading the poems and then everyone got their own poem and every one of my own, of the oboe students got their own, were, you know, picked and was assigned their own poem. Um, and then they took the reading of the poem and turned it into kind of a, an electronic soundscape. Um, and people added all sorts of different sounds, um, and we ended up with an absolute cornucopia of options, and people turned it into, some presented the poem very straightforward, you could hear the text, others it was completely distorted, and we added all sorts of different sounds and things like that, and, you know, I, in my kind of limited ability with, you know, I'm not a, I don't own billion dollar audio editing software i use audacity which is free on the internet on the interwebs um, <laughs> but great program for kind of editing audio and it's very easy to use and it's not complicated and you can import all sorts of audio files um and you can create your own kind of electronic soundscape based on that um the previous year the year earlier than that we did something with the art museum and we talked about kind of what musical terms might be found inside paintings um like motion and vibrancy versus non-vibrancy and dynamics and um there's a ton of crossover there it was a, it was an it, you know a nice way to kind of translate um 
terms we think about in music to art and vice versa, well, in, in visual arts, painting and sculpture, um, and kind of going backwards. But, um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's very, I would say pretty consistently the, the first year folks who are doing it, it could be a brand new master's student, a first year doctoral student, um, or a, a freshman, um, or someone who maybe transferred in or who added an oboe minor or something. Um, it's scary at the beginning because you probably haven't done it or you, you know, you've done maybe very little, um, but it's as you kind of go through and as you um, start to say, okay, oh, I like this, um, and wait, I'm actually playing this. I'm very happy with how I'm playing this piece um, because you're so connected to it. It's almost impossible to not play it with a lot of meaning. And, um, you know, I don't have to, you know, force fit my own dynamic interpretations of pieces onto a student, they can really bring their own vision and from the very, very beginning. Um, it's it's an amazing thing to see how people open up and it really helps, I think it helps you fight that imposter syndrome because you start to, I'm also pretty insistent on, I'm not, you know, I'm not the always the most hippy-dippy person, but I am sometimes hippy-dippy, but my I am very steadfast and devoted to the fact that my oboe studio and this, the students inside the studio and my own office and in the oboe, the read room and in the, you know, in the rehearsal halls and things is a place of love, support, and encouragement. And it is not a place for, you know, backbiting and co competing by putting others down. Um, I'm really happy and with how I've um, and it's it's a mark of the students, not me, but um, that we can really keep a, a place open for students to try things, for students to fail, um, and to get better and to make mistakes. Every mistake is worth making if you learn from it. And, you know, you've got to make mistakes because that's – I think that not only helps you apply that process to other, you know – tricky things that are coming down the road, but it helps you as a teacher and it helps you in the practice room and kind of enhancing your own critical ear as you're evaluating your own playing and things like that. Um, but as students are free to express themselves through music and through writing a piece of music, I think it does help. I, I, I don't think, I know it helps um, students who may not have been very confident coming in start to find their feet kind of firmly planted on the ground um, and asserting their own interpretations of, of new pieces that they, you know, beyond the work that they compose for themselves. Um, and that is what it's all about. Um, it's, it's, it's a, a process for sure, because it's a lot of time. Um, and, you know, you really end up kind of sitting in the practice room, improvising and noodling around. But as a teacher, I'm very happy for that because, you start to come across maybe different interval patterns that you haven't before, and the the tuning strife that might come from you know unusual leaps or things that you haven't really seen in your own music yet, um, and it's so it's really it's an it's a win 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 situation. <laughs> um, it it makes you a, a stronger musician. It makes you I I really find it it helps students find confidence um and it helps you interpret rhythms it helps you learn new things on the instrument it helps you explore the instrument in new ways it helps you troubleshoot it helps you i mean it's it's just really a, a kind of a remarkable process um and i i know for a fact that it's um on my you know we get a, as teachers at you know universities we get evaluations every semester um, every semester, I, or in the spring in particular, I get, um, you know, oh, the, the, my favorite thing was the composition project, and um, I can't wait to do it next year, and that kind of thing. It it's always seems to be really, really, really successful. Um, and now I'm kind of in the exciting stage of daydreaming about what is next. Um, but I love connecting students with 
faculty and students that are not in our area um, because going back to kind of working and interacting with other types of academics and other students and other fields, it really makes you, you know, sometimes you have to hunt a little harder for inspiration and kind of finding the, um, you know, the, the way in which you can connect music to astrophysics. Um, it's not always an immediate connection, but um, I think it helps, you know, humans be humans. Um, it, it, it's, and it's also wonderfully fun for the other area. Um, and for the most recent one we did, which was the astrophysics, we performed in the, um, in the physics department, where, is where we gave our concert of the pieces. Um, and the, the, the director of um, astrophysics and physics said, I, this is the coolest thing I've seen in 20 years, and, and you've got to do this again and concertize it, and can we make this into a lecture recital where I have faculty coming and talking about the, the topics that your students picked? Um, so, you know, maybe a little more information on a black hole or kind of how time and space distort when it's bending around a planet or, um, you know. And so it, it inspires other sides, too, and I think it's a really interesting thing to see um, non-musicians get fired up about music and their own topics and fields um, through music. So it's it's a great kind of, um, you know, selfishly, I think it's also a great way to for keeping kind of classical music alive and um, bringing it to people who don't normally hear it um, and creating new audiences. And that's really what, you know, is kind of the the axe to grind or cross to bear of kind of the 21st century musician, which is we have to kind of create audiences that are maybe aging out, right? It's not the same blue-haired ladies concert hall. It's a different, mm-hmm. kind of, you've got to kind of generate your own um, opportunities. And sometimes that's calling up an astrophysics professor out of the blue and saying, hi, I'm Dan. I have a super weird idea but go with me on it. <laughs> Take you out for coffee. And, you know, it's, it, I've never not had anyone who, everyone seems to be very excited about it. Like, oh yeah, let's do that. Um, so it's, you know, it works out kind of really, really well for both sides. And, it, and my, my first thing I tell kind of the faculty that I pair up with outside of music is no matter what I want to do, I don't want this to be a, a waste of your time or just a drain on your resource of time. Um, you know, I want this to work for you and how can we make it, you know, so it's performing in their classrooms. It's, um, you know, getting unique kind of opportunities where you can pair the students up, um, you know, things like that, where it's, it, it, it's more than just kind of a, yeah, I can come talk for, you know, 20 minutes to your kids you know, it's not, it's, I, I try to make it meaningful for both sides and, and it's easy to do. It's not hard to make it, um, music is a great field and, and foundation for everybody. You know, everyone experiences music, um, no matter kind of what they are studying or where they came from or that kind of thing. So that is so awesome. I wish I were your student. See, I don't, cause I'm sitting here going, I'd be like, the Big Dipper? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, all this stuff it's, you're saying is really intimidating. I mean, it, it really is, you know, it's it's super daunting if you have, you know, and it, it it's not a let's write a 15-minute piece. And I guess that was the original question, which was how did I get into writing larger scale works? We didn't, I never really answered that, did I? Well, I completely, in um, wanting to piggyback on it, I completely hijacked it. So, yeah, I'd love if you did touch on Galit's original question. Sorry about that. No, totally. But, um, you know, it is, it's daunting to, the, the, the pieces that we, that come out of this kind of semester project that I do in the spring really range around kind of three to five minutes, which is brilliant. Um, and there are wonderful pieces that are three to five minutes long. Um, I'm pretty sure Weyburn's entire output fits into three to five minutes long. Um, <laughs> the So kind of how did I morph from kind of writing etudes and smaller scale works to kind of larger, you know, finger quoting, more serious 
kind of recital hall works, right? Um, I, it it really kind of just you have to start somewhere, right? You know, it's and before I get too far away, I I also want to say say that really every musician, especially instruments that existed in Baroque music, you need to compose because you're you're or, need to ornament Baroque music. And then as you get into kind of classical music and you're adding your own cadenzas and things like that, there's there are definitely areas in which you'll have to compose a little bit. So, Jackie, I know you're kind of saying, oh, my God, how do I take the Big Dipper into right into a piece? But I'm sure you've, you know, done Baroque ornamentation and things like that. So you've done composing. You've done all that kind of stuff. And all it is is just kind of extrapolating an ornament and just kind of going – off and just kind of noodling around and seeing kind of what you love. I've been really lucky that um, I get to, I've gotten to play recitals of all my own music twice at IDRS in the past few years. I did a recital in Tokyo um, of two pieces I wrote. My um, first published work was a oboe sonata, um, and I played that there. And then I had done another piece that was wordless kind of settings of poems, um, which is just called Songs Without Words, but um, not to steal from Mendelssohn or other composers who have that exact title. But um, the it was kind of a wordless setting of poems, which was kind of my own um, inspiration from poetry. But um, And then this most recent summer um, in Lawrence, in Wisconsin, I did uh, two electronic works. Um, and I did a piece for Obon Electronics, and I did a piece for English Horn and Electronics. So I've been really lucky that I get to kind of play these pieces at, um, uh, you know, venues and things where, you know, everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit, right? It's, mm-hmm. everyone's kind of in on, in on it and, like, ready for, like, new things and, like, okay, what do we got here? It's like, you know, it's going to a buffet. You get to try a little bit of everything at IDRS and, um, you know. So, really, again, not to kind of repeat myself, but the, this whole kind of composing for students eventually grew into a need and desire for me to be able to have music that's portable um, when I go, because I, 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 you know, I'm lucky enough that people will have me in um, to give master classes or even master classes and recitals at other universities and giving little recitals, uh, you know, around the country or even, you know, around the world, luckily enough. Um, so, there are times where you'll get, you know, a 30-minute rehearsal with the pianist right before you give the recital, um, and you can't do the you can't do the entire Strauss concerto and then the Poulenc sonata and then you know the Marcel Biche French Suite. You've got to find a way to kind of fill out your recitals in a way where you can prepare a lot of it on your own. Um, so I started kind of it all began maybe seven years ago, where I said, okay, I want to start figuring out if I can give recitals where I don't need a piano. Because I think it certainly limits where you can play, right? You can't just roll a Steinway out into the middle of a field somewhere and give a, a, you know, picnic under the stars recital. You can bring a keyboard, and there's certainly other ways around that. But um, so I said, okay, so what can I do? And then I started looking at all my unaccompanied repertoire, just solo oboe and English horn. And I said, okay, this is great. And then after about, you know, 25 minutes of playing solo oboe repertoire, my face was falling off mm-hmm. um, because it's just you. So there's, you know, the the amount of rests you can put in, in those kinds of pieces are, um, you know, it's minimal at best. Um, unless you kind of throw in some John Cage or, you know, where you're sitting there for 33 seconds. But um, the, so that's kind of how I started, certainly with electronic music, um, because that is a, and that was the, that was the recital I gave um, at IDRS this summer, which was kind of my showing the world. There's, there's great pieces for, for, you know, electronics and instruments and things. And there's wonderful, live electronics where there's a, a, a mixing board and an audio engineer who's looping you and capturing you, and those pieces are incredible and they're amazing. Um, but they're not always feasible, right? When you someone says, hey, can you come play for my students, and it's, you know, two days away and you can't get, what you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I wanted to start writing pieces that would let my mouth take a little bit of a break. Um, and 
because as double read players, we have to think about those sorts of things as we're making programs. Um, the so that was really how electronic music kind of came into being, um, and well, not in the world, but for me and how I started approaching it. Um, and I, you know, I the recital I gave at IDRS was really a a I'm playing on a thirty dollar speaker that I bought online. And I'm running it from my phone to the speaker, Bluetooth or wired, you know, auxiliary kind of jack or whatever you want to do, um, which is incredibly simple. And you can have really successful concerts with just you and a little speaker. It doesn't have to be, you know, I've, I've given concerts that have started an hour and a half late because the, the speakers weren't working or the, the – the cords that you were running, the outlets weren't where they needed to be. But without needing, you know, having a, a little portable speaker that can play incredibly loud um, and, you know, has 30 hours of battery life before it runs out and things like I mean, obviously, there's only so much you can do to pr- protect yourself against electronic glitches. But I find that the, mo- the less outlets and cords you need, the better um, in terms of this is going to work for sure, guaranteed every time. Um, but... My journey kind of from from starting to compose to writing more kind of recital-length pieces was really uh, just because I fell in love with it more and more as I started doing it. You know, I, I'm 100% in an age where having computer software and composing software help you, not help you, but you get to hear it, is a huge advantage for me as a, as a non-pianist. I can't, you know, it... it I'm fairly certain I wouldn't be able to do this um, without, you know, my computer playing back what I just typed in. And there's a there's a fair amount of, you know, I'm bringing my own thoughts that I have in my head to the computer. But sometimes I'm like, let me see what the piano does if I change this or something like that. But I wouldn't be able to play it on piano. Um, so that substantially helps me. But a lot of my pieces come out of specific events that I'm doing. So I mentioned earlier that I have a piece for um, flute, oboe, double bass, and electronics. Um, and that's because a few years ago I did a piece, a trio faculty recital at OU for flute, oboe, and double bass. Um, and there are not a lot of pieces, as in none, that exist for that instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are probably some out there, but there uh, we didn't find any. Um, so the bass professor wrote a piece for us, and I wrote a piece for us. So it was a you know, a kind of 12-minute piece for trio and electronics. Um, and it's it mainly, you know, I started to really love playing original pieces. Um, and I try to kind of do it on every recital I give. And um, so every time I play a recital or I'm playing at an event, I was really, really fortunate enough um, at the end of this past school year, I hosted in a, a benefit concert for kind of the international students on OU's campus um, as kind of traveling was getting harder to do and scarier to do for students going back to certain countries. Um, We had a lot of students that were trapped on campus and and are legally not allowed to work. Um, So grocery money and um, simple amenities um, were going to be a commodity. Um, So I kind of called up the international studies department, teamed up with the dean, and we hosted a really, really wonderful benefit concert and raised a really awesome amount of money. Um, And, you know, I wish it was more. You know, obviously, you always wish it could be more. But um, I wrote a piece kind of for that event for Oboe and Piano just because I wanted to turn it into a commission project that can raise money. So I kind of put it out on Facebook and sent it out to – oboists or any other instruments and said, I'm happy to transpose this. Um, if you want the piece, I'll send it to you. If you want to just put your name in the piece, you know, 20 bucks, trying to keep it, you know, so a lot of people can participate. And it, it generated a really serious amount of money, um, with all of which went to the benefit concert. Um, and I love getting to do that. So for me, it's, you know, I'm not going to retire from mobile playing because I'm such a successful composer monetarily. That's for dang sure. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, there's something it's, it's, there's a lot of good pride in putting an original piece out there. And um, especially if you're really happy with it and um, you know, 
but if you're not, you don't have to play it. And you can, you know, usually there aren't a lot of deadlines for me. I'm not, a, you know, in demand as kind of a big commission or anything like that. And, not, and by you, not usually, I mean never. I've never been. <laughs> um, so I'm primarily just writing works for myself to play. And, you know, I know um, Galit is humoring me and I think going to play the English horn and electronics piece. I'm um, so excited to play that. It's a fun, you know, there, it's fun. And there are not a lot of pieces, frankly, for oboe and electronics that are available. You hear them recorded, but not all those pieces are published. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you find a way to track people down that are still living um, and that have the music still, it's not a huge, there's a lot, but it's not a hugely accessible field. Um, and I, I, I do think it's making a comeback. Some, you know, I know some composers kind of think of it as a little bit of an outdated um medium but it's not and i think it's coming back kind of like gangbusters um because i see it a lot more now um where you kind of see especially with oboe that you know there's not a lot of a lot of and i think saxophone had a lot to do with kind of a lot of solo rep and the, the amount of things the saxophone can do is incredible in relation to dynamically speaking and all sorts of technical things so a lot of composers, when they want to do kind of that, you know, quote, kooky, crazy, virtuosic, whatever piece, oboe isn't always the first on their list of who they want to, um, you know, write for. And I wonder why. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it's, you know, you get in, it's like, the open, you know, an oboist is like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Or nah. <laughs> um, We have the range of like four notes. <laughs> like, like the dynamic range of like half of a clarinet um, <laughs> and you know it's but it, it was really sad and it, it all this kind of started from uh, I did a with the electronic music faculty at OU um, I did a, a international call for submissions for pieces for oboe and electronics um, and for the students to play this was totally unrelated to any kind of of our own composition. This was a different project and it was just a fun way to kind of see kind of what was out there and who was, it was free for the composers to send it in. It wasn't like a, you know, didn't generate any money or anything. Um, but I would say 90% of the pieces we got were written for other instruments and transposed to oboe for that call for submissions. So you could tell because the recordings they sent in were bass clarinet or saxophone. Um, or there were like oopsies, I left wrong markings in the score, um, and it's like saxophone inserts mute or inserts whatever into whatever. So it was kind of like you know you could tell pretty easily that most of these submissions were not written for the oboe. And there's a there's something to be said for works that are conceived with that instrument in mind. I think you know a lot of things transfer and it's great, but you know. There's certain things that are idiomatic to instruments that aren't to others, and um, you know, I think it's. I was a little bit, you know, crestfallen that it wasn't, you know, more kind of pieces written specifically for oboe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I just kind of started writing my own and playing them and getting to kind of play them all sorts of places. But looping really far back, I didn't find it. I think like anything else, it's a skill and you start to explore. And so what, when you're writing smaller pieces, you're mostly dealing with kind of melody and, you know, harmony to whatever extent you're kind of thinking about it and and using it. Um, But then you, as you start writing larger scale, kind of more quote, serious works, you start having to kind of experiment with newer things, form, um, and kind of development, um, and instrument stamina and things like that. And it's, there's a lot of really, you start to tackle a new set of, um, challenges, which is very exciting. Um, and I'm just kind of now finishing up a, um, concerto for oboe and strings, which I'm, is about 19 minutes long. I'm really, really happy with it. But what's great about, you know, the world we live in is I don't play violin or cello or, but I never, I never ever am afraid to ask for help. And I think that's something musicians should never be 
cautious to do. If you don't understand how to do something or you want help, ask. Everyone's willing to help you. Um, so, you know, hey, can I bake you a thing of gluten-free brownies and will you look over my string parts and see, you know, is this super crazy? What would I, what would I change? What do I need to change? Um, you know, like, oh, that, that double stop doesn't work or that, you know, there's not enough time to put a mute in or to switch to pizzicato there. Um, you know, so there's, you get a lot of help for, um, cause I'm basically making up for a complete lack of composition education. <laughs> Cause I never had a, you know, you're in your orchestration class or in your conducting class, you learn the ranges of the instruments and you learn, you know, where their kind of tessitura sits and things like that. But, um, and you, just by being in an orchestra or a band or, you know, you, and going through school, you learn a lot of that stuff just kind of by being around it. But, um, it's, you know, there are certain things that are kind of like, okay, this doesn't work great for this. Maybe you want to kind of swap that out um, for something else or things like that. But it, it really is you just get better and better as you write. And, and it's not harder to write a larger scale work than it is to write a smaller scale work. And, and I, I genuinely think, and this is going to sound so pretentious and snotty and stupid, but you know, sometimes you're writing a piece and you you know it's not going to be a long, like, that piece isn't suited for um, a large-scale work. It's it's maybe a small piece. Um, and, you know, maybe you could expand it and, and force it. But as you're kind of composing it, you find yourself being like, I'm happy with this. And that's kind of where this piece is speaking to me, right? And it's like, oh, this is this feels right. This is the right <laughs> That's where I'm going with pretentious. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's like you're watching, like, a Project one Runway or something, and, like, the person, like, throws fabric on the dress form, and it's like, I want the fabric to speak to me, and it's like wrapping it, and it's like, that's it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why they're all, like, weird, like, old British ladies or whatever accent. But um, the, you know, sometimes that piece is not built to be 25 minutes long. Um and sometimes it is. And you're writing and you're like, this is definitely the first movement of something. Um, and you can kind of keep going. So it's the more I, – I, I genuinely think the more you do it, the more you kind of are in tune with it. And just like anything, you know, you get better and better and more comfortable with kind of whatever you're going to do. Um, and getting, you know, to dupe friends and colleagues into playing <laughs> music, um, you get good feedback on, on you know, kind of what – I'm always happy for someone to say, you know, this wasn't quite like a great flute part or something. Um, I'm, you know, not in a, I, no one's ever kind of said anything like that, but there, it's, it's good to get, especially in the, when it's your piece and you can make changes. Um, it, it, it's wonderful. There's a, there's a great amount of flexibility and fluidity in playing a world premiere that you're writing um, because you can really kind of like workshop it. Um, and, you know, play it in the earlier stages, and as you're polishing it up, you can kind of tinker with things and that kind of thing. So it, it's um, it gets easier as you do more, and it certainly gets easier when you have great friends and peers and colleagues who are willing to kind of, you know, play your piece. Um, and you get, all you know, all sorts of... Because I'm curious, Galit, when you play the electronic piece, it's... I know, you know, it's it's for English horn and electronics, and mm-hmm. I, I made the tape, so I know what where every little tick and and swell and things are in the tape. But when you know, as a composer, how do you get someone else through that? Mm-hmm. Is incredibly valuable and helpful for me to add. And then maybe I need a time cue here, or could you put a cue in of this or things like that? Because um, it, you know, it clicked when I heard that there was a kind of bass drum rumble here and then I knew to come in or things like that. Um, so, you know, you try to construct the piece in a way that you hope it's played in a similar way. But obviously there's going to be a lot of flexibility in a piece with electronics, but um, the, you, you can't head off every error um, at the onset. So mm-hmm. it's good to, um, you know, troubleshoot and and get good feedback kind of as you're composing but i think 
from going from smaller works to larger works was really just, you know, going to the composition gym and doing some hot yoga. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What's, what's hip these days? CrossFit. (laughs) Dan, this has been such an inspiring and wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mavericks series. Thank you for having me. This was, you know, I can ramble and so I hope anyone got anything from it and um, it was a blast and thank you guys for doing this and bringing different perspectives and um, different players and different voices in the industry to people, All you know, anyone who's willing to just click on the link and that's an amazing gift for people who don't have access to you know, a lot of those resources and a lot of, um, you know, there are places where there aren't oboe teachers and someone just found an oboe somewhere and um, is learning kind of through the Internet and YouTube. That So it's a great, it's an amazing thing. So thank you guys for doing this. Thank you so much.